Book Three, Chapter Ten of In Search of the Castaways. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In Search of the Castaways or the Children of Captain Grant by Jules Verne, Book Three, Chapter Ten, A Momentous Interview. An unfathomable gulf twenty-five miles long and twenty miles broad was produced, but long before historic times, by the falling in of caverns among the trachytic lavas of the centre of the island, and these waters, falling from the surrounding heights, have taken possession of this vast basin. The gulf has become a lake, but it is also an abyss, and no lead line has yet sounded its depth. Such is the wondrous lake of Tapo lying one thousand two hundred and fifty feet above the level of the sea and in view of an amphitheatre of mountains two thousand four hundred feet high on the west are rocky peaks of great size on the north lofty summits clothed with low trees on the east a broad beach with a road-track and covered with pumice-stones which shimmer through the leafy screen of the bushes on the southern side rise volcanic cones behind a forest flat. Such is the majestic frame that encloses this vast sheet of water, whose roaring tempests rival the cyclones of ocean. The whole region boils like an immense cauldron hung over subterranean fires. The ground vibrates from the agitation of the central furnace. Hot springs filter out everywhere. The crust of the earth cracks in great rifts like a cake, too quickly baked. About a quarter of a mile off, on a craggy spur of the mountain, stood a Pa, or Maori fortress. The prisoners, whose feet and hands were liberated, were landed one by one and conducted into it by the warriors. The path which led up to the entrenchment lay across the fields of Forium and a grove of beautiful trees, the Kakatis, with persistent leaves and red berries, Dracinus australis, and the tea-trees, of the natives whose crown is a graceful counterpart of the cabbage-palm and hyuas which are used to give a black dye to cloth large doves with metallic sheen on their plumage and a world of starlings with reddish caramels flew away at the approach of the natives after a rather circuitous walk glenarvan and his party arrived at the paw the fortress was defended by an outer enclosure of strong palisades fifteen feet high a second line of stakes then a fence composed of osiers with loopholes enclosed the inner space that is the plateau of the pa on which were erected the maori buildings and about forty huts arranged symmetrically when the captives approached they were horror-struck at the sight of the heads which adorned the posts of the inner circle lady helena and mary grant turned away their eyes more with disgust than with terror. These heads were those of hostile chiefs who had fallen in battle, and whose bodies had served to feed the conquerors. The geographer recognized that it was so, from their eye-sockets being hollow and deprived of eyeballs. Glenarvan and his companions had taken in all this scene at a glance. They stood near an empty house, waiting the pleasure of the chief, and exposed to the abuse of a crowd of old crones. This troop of harpies surrounded them, shaking their fist, howling and vociferating. Some English words that escaped their coarse mouths left no doubt that they were clamoring for immediate vengeance. 
in the midst of all these cries and threats lady helena tranquil to all outward seeming affected an indifference she was far from feeling this courageous woman made heroic efforts to restrain herself lest she should disturb glenarvan's coolness poor mary grant felt her heart sink within her and john mangles stood by ready to die in her behalf his companions bore the deluge of invectives each according to his disposition the major with utter indifference paganel with exasperation that increased every moment glenarvan to spare lady helena the attacks of these witches walked straight up to kai kamal and pointed to the hideous group send them away said he the maori chief stared fixedly at his prisoner without speaking and then with a nod he silenced the noisy horde glenarvan bowed as a sign of thanks and went slowly back to his place at this moment a hundred maoris were assembled in the pa old men full-grown men youths the former were calm but gloomy awaiting the orders of kai kamau the others gave themselves up to the most violent sorrow bewailing their parents and friends who had fallen in the late engagements kai kamau was the only one of the chiefs that obeyed the call of william thompson who had returned to the lake district and he was the first to announce to his tribe the defeat of the national insurrection beaten on the plains of the lower wakato of the two hundred warriors who under his orders hastened to the defence of the soil one hundred and fifty were missing on his return allowing for a number being made prisoners by the invaders how many must be lying on the field of battle never to return to the country of their ancestors this was the secret of the outburst of grief with which the tribe saluted the arrival of kai kamo up to that moment nothing had been known of the last defeat and the fatal news fell on them like a thunderclap among the savages sorrow is always manifested by physical signs the parents and friends of deceased warriors the women especially lacerated their faces and shoulders with sharpened shells the blood spurted out and blended with their tears deep wounds denoted great despair the unhappy maoris bleeding and excited were hideous to look upon there was another serious element in their grief not only had they lost the relative or friend they mourned but his bones would be missing in the family mausoleum in the maori religion the possession of these relics is regarded as indispensable to the destinies of the future life not the perishable flesh but the bones which are collected with the greatest care cleaned scraped polished even varnished and then deposited in the udupa that is the house of glory these tombs are adorned with wooden statues representing with perfect exactness the tattoo of the deceased but now their tombs would be left empty the religious rites would be unsolemnized and the bones that escaped the teeth of the wild dog would whiten without burial on the field of battle then the sorrowful chorus redoubled the menaces of the women were intensified by the imprecations of the men against the europeans abusive epithets were lavished the accompanying gestures became more violent the howl was about to end in brutal action kai kumo fearing that he might be overpowered by the fanatics of his tribe conducted his prisoners to a sacred place on an abruptly raised plateau at the other end of the pa 
This hut rested against a mound elevated a hundred feet above it, which formed the steep outer buttress of the entrenchment. In this where Atua, sacred house, the priests or Arikis taught the Maoris about a triune god, father, son, and bird or spirit. The large, well-constructed hut contained the sacred and choice food which Maui Ranga Rangui eats by the mouths of his priests. In this place, and safe for the moment from the frenzied natives, the captives lay down on the flax mats. Lady Helena was quite exhausted, her moral energies prostrate, and she fell helpless into her husband's arms. Glenarvan pressed her to his bosom and said, Courage, my dear Helena, heaven will not forsake us. Robert was scarcely in when he jumped on Wilson's shoulders and squeezed his head through a crevice left between the roof and the walls, from which chaplets of amulets were hung. From that elevation he could see the whole extent of the Pa, and as far as Kai Kumo's house. "'They are all crowding around the chief,' he said softly. "'They are throwing their arms about. They are howling. Kai Kumo is trying to speak.' Then he was silent for a few minutes. Kaikumo was speaking. The savages are quieter. They are listening. Evidently, said the Major, this chief has a personal interest in protecting us. He wants to exchange his prisoners for some chiefs of his tribe. But will his warriors consent? Yes, they are listening. They have disappeared. Some have gone into their huts. The others have left the entrenchment. Are you sure? said the Major. "'Yes, Mr. McNabbs,' replied Robert. "'Kaikumo is left alone with the warriors of his canoe. "'Oh, one of them is coming up here.' "'Come down, Robert,' said Glenarvan. "'At this moment Lady Helena, who had risen, seized her husband's arm. "'Edward,' she said in a resolute tone, "'neither Mary Grant nor I must fall into the hands of these savages alive.' "'And so saying, she handed Glenarvan a loaded revolver. "'Firearm?' exclaimed Glenarvan, with flashing eyes. "'Yes, the Maoris do not search their prisoners, but, Edward, this is for us, not for them.' Glenarvan slipped the revolver under his coat. At the same moment the mat at the entrance was raised, and a native entered. He motioned to the prisoners to follow him. Glenarvan and the rest walked across the paw and stopped before Kai Como. He was surrounded by the principal warriors of his tribe and among them the maori whose canoe joined that of the kaikumo at the confluence of puhain henna on the waikato he was a man about forty years of age powerfully built and of fierce and cruel aspect his name was karatet meaning the irascible in the native tongue kaikumo treated him with a certain tone of respect and by the fineness of his tattoo it was easy to perceive that karatet held a lofty position in the tribe. But a keen observer would have guessed the feeling of rivalry that existed between these two chiefs. The major observed that the influence of Karatet gave umbrage to Kai Kumo. They both ruled the Wakati tribes, and were equal in authority. During this interview Kai Kumo smiled, but his eyes betrayed a deep-seated enmity. Kai Kumo interrogated Glenarvan. "'You are English?' he said. "'Yes,' replied Glenarvan, unhesitatingly, as his nationality would facilitate the exchange. "'And your companions?' said Kaikumo. 
My companions are English like myself. We are shipwrecked travellers, but it may be important to state that we have taken no part in the war. That matters little, was the brutal answer of Caratet. Every Englishman is an enemy. Your people invaded our island. They robbed our field. They burned our villages. They were wrong, said Glenarvan quietly. I say so because I think it, not because I am in your power. Listen, said Kaikumo, the Tohanga, the chief priest of the Nui Atua, has fallen into the hands of your brethren. He is a prisoner among the Pakakas. Our deity has commanded us to ransom him. For my own part, I would rather have torn out your heart. I would have stuck your head and those of your companions on the posts of that palisade. But Nui Atua has spoken. As he uttered these words, Kaikumo, who till now had been quite unmoved, trembled with rage, and his features expressed intense ferocity. Then, after a few minutes' interval, he proceeded more calmly. Do you think the English will exchange you for our Tahanga? Glenarvan hesitated, all the while watching the Maori chief. I do not know, said he, after a moment of silence. Speak! returned Kaikumo. Is your life worth that of our Tahunga? No, replied Glenarvan. I am neither a chief nor a priest among my own people. Paganel, petrified at this reply, looked at Glenarvan in amazement. Kaikumo appeared equally astonished. You doubt it, then? said he. I do not know, replied Glenarvan. Your people will not accept you as an exchange for Tahunga? Me alone? No repeated Glenarvan. All of us, perhaps, they might. Our Maori custom, replied Kaikomo, is head for head. Offer first these ladies in exchange for your priest, said Glenarvan, pointing to Lady Helena and Mary Grant. Lady Helena was about to interrupt him, but the Major held her back. These two ladies, continued Glenarvan, bowing respectfully toward Lady Helena and Mary Grant, are personages of rank in their own country. The warrior gazed coldly at his prisoner. An evil smile relaxed his lips for a moment. Then he controlled himself, and in a voice of ill-concealed anger, "'Do you hope to deceive Kaikumo with your lying words? Accursed Pakaka! Cannot the eyes of Kaikumo read hearts?' and pointing to Lady Helena, "'That is your wife,' he said. "'No, mine!' exclaimed Keretet. And then, pushing his prisoners aside, he laid his hand on the shoulder of Lady Helena, who turned pale at his touch. "'Edward!' cried the unfortunate woman in terror. Glenarvan, without a word, raised his arm, a shot, and Keretet fell at his feet. The sound brought a crowd of natives to the spot. A hundred arms were ready, and Glenarvan's revolver was snatched from him. Kaikumo glanced at Glenarvan with a curious expression, then with one hand protecting Glenarvan, and with the other he waved off the crowd who were rushing on to the party. At last his voice was heard above the tumult. "'Taboo! Taboo!' he shouted. At that word the crowd stood still before Glenarvan and his companions, who for the time were preserved by a supernatural influence. A few minutes after, they were reconducted to where Achua, which was their prison, but Robert Grant and Paganel were not with them. 
End of Book 3, Chapter 10